Our passage for this morning from which we will begin and to which we will come again and again is from Ezekiel 36, beginning at verse 22. And since this is a word of God and since we have a God who is to be honored in, uh, and who is majestic, let's stand for the reading of his word. Ezekiel 36, chapter 22nd verse. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that, I'm about, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all uncleannesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and for your ab abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. With that, we end the reading of God's word. Infallible, inerrant, eternal, the word from the Lord. Thanks be to God. And you may be seated. Just a short, hopefully it's a short introduction, and the introduction is to go back to last week just to remind you where we've been, and I, I, I go back and do the things over and over again, because we are like Peter says we are. Our minds leak. We forget, and we have to be reminded again and again and again. We are talking about the sacraments, and there's two words that I've used for those. One, they're mysteries. That's a word in its Greek origin means shh. It once was quiet and now it's come out. It's a mystery. And it takes a while for people to pull that in. But the other term I've used is seed. Or if you remember last week, I used the word seed form. 
that each of the sacraments plant a seed within God's people, God's elect. Not just anybody, but there's a seed that's planted that the Holy Spirit uses to grow, to come to fruition, to help you understand and grow in your faith. That's what happens. Now there is a definition Oh, yeah, I'm spelling real well this morning. It's, somebody get me spell check. <laughs> Definition of a sacrament is it's visible. It helps you to see something that is invisible. When you look at it, you think about something invisible. It is holy. That is, God has set it apart from a common use to a sacred use. And therefore, when you come to the sacraments, it is a serious thing that you do. I mean, it's not just having a little wafer, drinking a little bit of cup, getting your head wet or something like that. There's something about it that is serious, and you take it seriously. But that doesn't mean you don't take it with joy. You can't have fun but you don't desecrate it. It's a sign. It points to something else. You look at the sacrament and you don't think, oh, sacrament. You think, what does that mean? Part of what we're going to do as we think about the sacraments is we are going to look at what, to what does it point. And fourthly, it's a seal that it, better than this dry eraser that's running out of dryness, or it assures us of something to which it points. So when you are in the sacrament, the Holy Spirit and your mind ought to use it to assure us. When I understand what the sacrament is, it assures me that if I, or as I am a child of God, or maybe for some, if I'm a child of God, then it tells me this, and it gives me what it says. That's what a sacrament, it's a means of grace. A means of grace meaning that it is one way in which God takes his grace and he applies it to our lives, not mechanically but through the observance. One of the things I didn't talk about last week, but we, you have to do it and you have to be very careful of how you think of it, is this little Latin phrase. And I hope I spelled it right. I mean, I haven't had Latin since I was in ninth grade. Mrs. Simonich, which we used to give her a different name than that, but that's okay. <laughs> Ex opera operata. Roman Catholic view is that because you do it, it operates. You baptize a child, they are baptized. It is assured that what, this, what the sacrament means, it does. When you take communion, or in their case, when you take the mass, which we will talk about in a few weeks, there's something 
happens simply because you take it. Protestants, we've always shied away from that. We said, yes, there is something happens for those who are part of the elect, part of God's children. And I use that in a limited term, not that all people are God's children, for those who are the elect. But it doesn't have to happen mechanically or because you do it the right way or you say the right words. It happens because God, by his Holy Spirit, out of his grace, accomplishes what he wants to do with the sacrament. So that's, that's it. Today we're on Lord's Day 26 and we're going to start talking about baptism. We'll spend this week and next week doing it. And if you don't have this book, you can get it. And there's a real benefit. It's $5. It's, it's a great buy. And because I forgot my book, I had to go back in the library and get this. And since I'm using it, it's a used book, so we'll sell it to you for $4.50. <laughs> Oh, wonderful. Aren't, aren't we so generous? Lord's Day 26. There are two questions we're going to take a look at, number 69 and number 71. And you will notice as you read through the Heidelberg Catechism, they, they say things over and over again, especially in the sacraments, probably because we are slow to hearing and we have to hear them over and over again. And so you don't necessarily have to teach one question at a time. For instance, we're going to read question 69. How is it signified and sealed to you in holy baptism that you have part in the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross? Answer, thus, the Christ instituted this outward washing with water and joined to it this promise that I am washed with his blood and spirit from the pollution of my soul, that is, from all my sins, as certainly as I am washed outwardly with water, whereby commonly the filthiness of the body is taken away. And then you can tur excuse me, turn over to 71. Boy, those eggs were good this morning. That's all there is to it. Question 71, where has Christ promised that we are as certainly washed with his blood and spirit as with the water of baptism? And the answer is in the institution of baptism which says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. The promise is also repeated where scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Both of those questions help you understand the meaning of baptism. It reminds us, first of all, that Christ instituted baptism. It is not an invention of the church. He gave it to the church, and he set it, to, set it apart. For instance, again, the passage that the catechism uses, but that is, we normally think of when we think about baptism from Matthew 28, 
where Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice what it is. This is a command, but there's only one verb that is a command. And it's not go. It is make disciples. Not make decisions, but make disciples. Help people come to the Lord Jesus Christ and help them then to mature in their relationship with Christ. And how do you do this? First of all, you go. That go is a participle. It means while you are going, that is when you are in the market, the marketplace, home, your neighborhood, your business, wherever you are. Go. There is where you start the process. Then it says baptizing. To baptize is to dunk. It is to pour. It is to sprinkle. It can be used in all those three ways. For instance, there are different understandings of uh, Jesus' own baptism. Because it really depends upon the season in which they were doing it. There was a rainy season in which the Jordan River flowed and it flowed so much you really couldn't baptize them because, you know, you, you stick somebody other under and you lose touch with them and they're two miles down before you, they even come up again. So there are some seasons you can't do. There are other seasons where it's a slow-moving slow river. But without the rains of the north and of the mountains, it can be shallow. And you may not be able to dunk them all the way underneath. So you may take water and pour it over their heads. And there are other seasons where it's really dry. And the best you can do is just a little sprinkle. All three of those are found and wrapped up in that word baptism. And what it tells us is the form that you use, the way in which you do it, is not important. It is a function of being a means of grace. In fact, if you look at that, the passages, it said when Jesus came up out of the water, we usually think, oh yeah, he jumped up out of the water. It could also mean when Jesus came out of the river and was on the bank, the Spirit descended upon him like a dove and the Father spoke to him, this is my son, my beloved son. See, we set it in our minds one way when there are other possibilities that that same thing can do. But it does mean to have water poured, dunked, sprinkled over you. Notice they're also baptized into the name. One name. Father of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What is the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, if you look at the Old Testament and the scriptures, you'll realize the name is Yahweh. I am who I am. Because that term is used for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout the scriptures. That's the name. We get all wrapped up whether we're using the right name. Some, some denominations say, oh, you only baptize in the name of Jesus. Because that's how they did it in Acts. No, that's only one part of the name. Don't get wrapped up in whether it's done that way. It is 
in the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the eternal, self-sufficient one. And then finally, there's this promise that goes with us. And I will be with you. And it can be translated one of two ways. To the ends of the world, which means wherever you go, I'm there with you. Or to the ends of the age. That's where how the ESV translates it. That means throughout all time, I'm going to be with my people. You know, that sounds a whole lot like Ezekiel. When he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will never leave you. I will be with you. And why does he do that? He says, it's not because you've been the best of all people. He said, I do it because I'm going to vindicate the holiness of my great name. I am going to act for the sake of my name. See, baptism is something he gives to us to remind us. It's not us. Baptism doesn't point to us. It points to him. And it vindicates his holy name. Because it reminds us of why we need to be baptized. And that's the second part. The apostles reinforce this, and if you had the outline, I can give you a couple scriptures. Acts 2.38, which is a good one to look because it's the very beginning of the New Testament church, which is a continuation of the Old Testament church. But Peter is giving his first sermon. Not a bad job for a first sermon, I have to say. And my opinion is worth a zippo on this one. But he gets to the end. He said, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Did not read Norman Vincent Peale. Did not know Andrew Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. He just nailed them. And their response now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, to the very core of who they were. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And his response, repent, turn around, change your way, or be changed, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I, I don't think I noticed this before until I read it. It doesn't say those who call upon the name of the Lord. It's those who the Lord God calls to himself. Remember who's the actor in all of this. It's not us. We are simply reacting to what God does and is doing within us. It is God who calls us to himself. Again, go back to Ezekiel 36. Is that not what God has been saying through that prophecy of baptism? I am doing this not for your sake. Because quite frankly, Israel, he could have said, you don't deserve it. You've been rebellious. You haven't listened. However, I am doing it for the sake of my name and the sake of my holiness. 
Or you could take a look at it, uh, Romans 6, 1 to 4, which we used a couple weeks ago, where it talks about what to do when you are ready to sin. And it says, just remember, you've been baptized in Christ. You are united with him. You have been dead, counted dead to sin, but alive to God through Christ. Please don't do what you're about to do. That's a little bit more than please. Paul is not begging, he's commanding, don't do it. By no means, God forbid. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 5, which I used last week, where it reminded in the Old Testament they were baptized into Moses, that is, they were united with Moses, they went through the sea, they were giving, given manna and water while they were in the desert, kind of visual ways and parallel ways to talk about the sacraments. Or even John 5, 6 to 8, where he talks about uh, Jesus, the, the three testimonies, there is a spirit, the water, and the blood. Water may not necessarily have to do with the baptism of Jesus. It may simply have to talk about his life. But there are three witnesses put together, spirit, water, and the cross. And those things are reinforcements of the sacrament. Then you get to what the sacrament promises. Uh, and, and here, it's, it's one of the things I love when, I, when I've had to do the sacrament because in our Book of Common Worship, there's a whole form of litany that we use. And part of the litany is to describe and remind the people of what the promises are to them and to those who are going to be baptized. It's, again, it takes seriously, and it gets, again, it has to remind people, probably because most of the churches we worked in uh, didn't have a whole lot of baptisms. If you had one every week, you probably remember it after about five weeks, if we could stop doing it this way. But most of the times, we don't have it very often, so we need to be reminded. The reminders and the promises there First of all, initiation. That is, we are brought into the body of Christ. Paul to the Ephesians, the fourth chapter, says that there is one Jesus, one faith, one baptism. And he pulls us together to say, this is the initiation into the body. As, as Peter said to the first listeners in Acts 2, what do we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Uh, others like Romans 4, Colossians 2.11, which really refer back to Genesis 17, the promise that is given to Abraham about his seed, and he is to circumcise them as a sign of being the covenant people. That doesn't mean that everyone got circumcised, really were part of the covenant, but it is the sign that they are given. Whether or not they live up to it is part of whether or not God has re regenerated them. But they are initiated into a body and they are brought there. Paul says himself in Romans 9, not everyone who is a Jew physically is Jew, is a child of God. It is those who are circumcised in the heart, regenerated by the Spirit. But it's initiated into a body. That's why baptism is never done privately. 
Pastor, I want to be baptized. Can we go to the river tomorrow and do it? I said, no, no, sir, can't do it. You are being baptized into the body of Christ, and the body of Christ needs to be there. So anytime we have a baptism, you represent the one holy Catholic apostolic church. See the seriousness of this? As well as when we do a baptism, you have to answer at least one or maybe two questions. And basically, will you help this individual in their Christian life? And you are saying that on behalf of the one holy apostolic Catholic church, universal church. So it's done. Now I know there are emergencies where you can baptize. Someone has come to faith in Christ like the uh, uh, Philip and the Ethiopian because he was going back home and there wasn't a body of Christ there. Uh, sometimes uh, in hospitals they'll have Catholic chaplains who will come and baptize. Uh, sometimes if the Catholic chaplain isn't there, the Protestant chaplain can do it, but that is not the norm. It's the exception, and it's a, a serious exception. You are initiated into the body of Christ. You are part of something bigger than yourself. It also signifies your adoption. And probably, unfortunately, this is a, a doctrine, a, a teaching of the church in our day that we have forgotten. But we are adopted into God's family. We are rebels who are brought into a gracious, wonderful family. We don't deserve to be there. In fact, we deserve exactly the opposite. But as in any adoption, the parents take ownership of the children. They say they will support and guide them. They are brought in with other siblings. And those other siblings, especially if they're natural children, are just as much responsible for the adopted ones as the parents Again, the idea of the body at work. When we adopted our children, the judge was very quick to tell us, you cannot treat them differently than you do your own children. They have to be in your will. Fortunately, she didn't say how much they'll get in our will. No, she says you have to treat them all alike. And think about that. Your adoption into the family of God, you are treated exactly like the natural son. That's what you think of when you think of uh, baptism. Romans 6, 5 or Galatians 3, 27, 29 where there's no Jew or Greek, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no free, no slave, no male nor female, but all are one in Christ. It's the idea of what baptism signifies. Second, thirdly, that you are clothed in Christ. You have a passage like Galatians 3, 27, 29, put on Christ because you are, no matter where you come from, you're all the same, but you are clothed. You know, one of the greatest fears of people have is public speaking of getting up in front of a group of us. You know what they tell you to do when you first 
do this. Think of the people as naked. And I'm going, in our day and age, oh, how can you do that? That's politically incorrect. But, but the worst part is you think you're naked. Every word you say, everything you do, every gesture, every word you scramble is right out in front of you. All of us are naked before God because he knows not only everything that other people know and not everything that we know, but he knows everything about us and there is no escape from his sight and his knowledge. You know, we, we try to play the game, look what a good boy I am. <laughs> Wasn't I good? And God looks at us and says, are you kidding me? I saw what you really meant when you said that. I know the inflection of your voice. I know the heart when it was, was, when it was done. You stand naked before me and you ought to be ashamed like Adam and Eve in the garden after they ate the fruit. And we are. But now, baptism symbolizes we are clothed with Christ, the righteousness of Christ. We put off the old by the renewing of our mind and we put on the new. And when we were justified, the new was given to us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. It doesn't say the new is coming. It's going to take a while. You already have the new. It's already around you. You simply have to begin to move it out in practice. But you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, you can stand before God. Therefore, when you really blow it and you know it, you don't have to worry about coming before the throne of Christ, the throne of God. It's not like you're saying, did you see what I did? Oh, come on, I knew it from all eternity. It's not like something's new. But I see you through my son. You're clothed in him. And because of that, I love you and I welcome you and I forgive you. Your identification is with Christ. How many of you carry a license or a state ID? Good, we got some action out of you already. You carry it because if you ever get stopped or you ever have to prove who you are, you pull that out. And it has your name and your address and usually your height and weight and the, weight and the color of your eyes if you're honest when you fill the thing out. And there's a picture of you. And that is good anywhere to show that when you write a check or you do something, you are the person whom you say you are. Well, your identification is in Christ. So when you come before the Father and he looks at you, you know, just picture this for a minute. And he gives that kind of puzzling picture. Who are you? You pull out your ID card. I'm one of your sons. Oh, welcome! That's a little far-fetched, but that's the idea. You have been identified with him. And that's who you are. That's the picture you have of yourself.
You are not the old person you used to be. You're a new person. And you have new ways. And you are called to live up to those old, those new ways. Jettison the old. Because that's your identification. What baptism says is that's who you are. So when you are tempted to sin, remember who you are and whose you are. And time out. Stop before God pulls out that yellow flag and throws it on the ground. He says, that's who you are. I am a child of God. I am the Father's beloved in Christ. I am one who has been remade. That's who I am. I am not the person I was before I came to Christ. And that's what baptism is meant to remind us. It reminds you of the rebirth. It was, John, it was Jesus who said, you must to Nicodemus, a very righteous, and he said, the teacher of Israel, which meant he was the top of all the teachers. It wasn't a teacher, it was the teacher. And he looked at him and said, you must be born again. What? How do I get back into my mother's womb? And if I did, ugh, wouldn't that be kind of messy and horrible? And think of what it would do to her. You talk about stretch marks. He says, no, 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 you misunderstand me. You must be born from above. You must have a rebirth, a second birth, done by the Spirit and the Spirit alone. Baptism reminds us that that is our rebirth. It's not, it's not according to our effort. No matter how small that effort may have been, it is entirely dependent upon God and only the Spirit can change the nature Remember back to Ezekiel? I will cleanse you. I will sprinkle water on you. I will cleanse you. I will take away your heart of stone and give you a fleshly heart, a heart of flesh. I will take away your rebellion and I will give you a heart that loves to do what I call you to do. In essence, that's what Ezekiel is saying. And that's what baptism reminds us. It is meant to remind us that one time we were not, now we are, all because of the Spirit. Next week we're going to talk about pedo-baptism, baptizing infants. I like pedo-baptism. You're going to hear me say how much I like it, and I think it's appropriate. But one of the reasons I'll tell you is what better symbol of baptism than a child who's only three or four months old, who cannot say a word, at best goes goo goo gaga and cries. In fact, I don't even hold the child during baptism because I know they're going to look up at this face and cry. I said, that really destroys what we're trying to do. But what better image? As that's exactly the way we are. We have nothing to do with it. But God does his work in us. That's the rebirth. Finally, no, I'm sorry, this is not final. You probably wish it were, but it's not. Cleansing. Washing of water. Remember John 13, Jesus loved his disciples and he loved them to the end. 
and he took off his cloak. He put on the garb of the lowest of servants, the lackey, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And they get to uh, going around, and Peter says, Lord, you're not washing my feet. I should be washing your feet. And Jesus says to a disciple, you are cleansed, but I have to clean your feet. And he's making a differentiation. All of you are already cleansed, but there has to be a time of getting rid of the muck that you've had as you've walked through this world. That's what baptism reminds us. We are all cleansed. We've had our washing. Forgiveness and seeking forgiveness is simply, you know, washing your hands after you've gone to the bathroom or before you fix a meal or when you've been doing the hard work and you've been touching the poison ivy. That's another metaphor for sinning. Touching the poison ivy and you have to get all that sap off your hands or it's going to be really painful for a long time. What a great metaphor for sinning, right? But you've already been cleansed. You had your shower that morning and you're clean. But there has to be cleansing. That's what baptism points to. As Christ cleanses his church, the bride, and he sanctifies and brings them to holiness and blamelessness, so he does, and so is signified in baptism. Or as Paul, as he's telling his own testimony in Acts twenty-two sixteen, he says, the voice said to me, arise, be baptized for the washing away of your sins. Call on my name. He's reminded that had, that had to take place in his life. The last one, and if I really worked at it, I probably could get all of these in the same first letter. But I'm sorry, I was being lazy. Forgive me. Oh. It's a reminder of God's covenant. Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I will be your God. You will be my people. And how did Peter say it? This promise is for, is for you and your children. It's the same formula that God used with Abraham. Circumcision is for you as a sign for you and your children. That you are mine, you are to obey what I say, and therefore I will, prom I will fulfill my promises. Ezekiel 36, Matthew 28, 20 do the same thing. You know what this does when you take a look at it? This ought to humble us. Anytime we do a baptism, or when you walk in and you go back past that baptismal font, you should be seriously humbled about who you are. You're great people, but you're not great. <laughs> Understand that? You are new creations. However, it's not of your own doing. It has always come from Christ. And baptism reminds us of exactly that. It also should remind you of the dignity that you have. 
It's not the dignity of the world around us that says, hey, you're a human being. You have dignity. Well, you do in one way because you are a human being and you have the image of God. As torn and broken, as twisted it may be, you still have it. But your dignity does not depend upon you or your creation. It depends upon your recreation. And it depends entirely upon Christ. And so you ought to hold, when you come past that baptismal font, you remember how humble you need to be. You hold your head up high. I am a child of the living God because of Jesus Christ. And baptism should revive the contrite. When you walk past that font, when we do a baptismal service, your, your heart ought to be revived. Why? Because of all these promises that are in there. And those promises are promises that God has made to those whom he has called. And God never reneges on a promise. I used to hate Christmas. Why? Because I promised my kids something. And I couldn't deliver on it. And they'd be so disappointed. Dad, you said you were going to get this. I'm sorry, just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't do it. Well, God never has to say I'm sorry. His promises are true. And all of these are shown when we do baptism. There's a passage from uh, Zechariah 13 verse 1 worth you memorizing on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness uncleanness there's a hymn there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilt and stains. Lose all their guilt and stains. I always go, oh my. Lose all their guilt and stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilt and stains. Beautiful verse for baptism. Beautiful hymn for baptism because it reminds us exactly what it is. What it tells us above all else is our, our salvation depends entirely on Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. We can add and bring nothing to it. With a call to live in a new way within the community of Christ, his church, the church universal, the Christ is formed rather than in the way of our pre-baptism life. And what happens? I talked about mystery. You know, all of this is in. Talk about the seed. What happens in the mystery of baptism is a seed is implanted by the Holy Spirit. And every time you see it and remember your baptism, another seed is planted that eventually will come to fruit and will help direct, guide, and energize your life. That's joyful stuff. That's also serious stuff.
And that's why baptism is so important. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for a word from you. And we ask and I ask, O oh Lord, that you would take what was said that comes from your word. Instill it into our mind, our heart, our will. Help us to remember what our baptism is all about. Help us to be reminded when we are so prone to deviate from who you are and what you've called us to be and do. Help us, O Lord, because we are so weak. And yet, you are so strong and you've signified that to us in our baptism. May we be like Luther, tempted to the hilt and say, I am baptized, I am baptized, and this is who I am. Therefore, O Lord, we look to you to be the author, perfecter, the guardian of our faith and help us to grow for your sake, for your name. And every, every person said, Amen. Amen.